Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh at RWCS 2019. We have a great conference, and one of the highlights of the conference are some of the case presentations by the fellows. So very happy to have a presentation from the University of Colorado. Dr. Mosa is going to tell us about a very interesting case with some interesting therapeutic options. Dr. Mosa. Right, thank you. Uh, today I'm going to talk about this very interesting lady. I know most of our patients in rheumatology are interesting, but this one is kind of like stood... Uh, aside for me. Uh, she's a 35 years old lady who was initially diagnosed with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome based on three consecutive miscarriages and uh, non-bacterial endocarditis um, and was started on anticoagulations and like shortly after she was discharged she came in back with diffuse arbor hemorrhage. We had to stop anticoagulation and start her on uh, uh, steroids uh, but as soon as we stopped the anticoagulation, unfortunately, she developed um, MCS stroke. So at that point, uh, we had to decide to go aggressive as far as like immunosuppression. And we gave her three uh, rounds of rituximab, uh, immuran maintenance, uh, and four cycle of IVIG. Um, however, her antiphospholid was persistently uh, positive. So after the third rituximab infusion, she was pretty much immunosuppressed, and unfortunately, she developed uh, bacterial endocarditis. Um, and at that point, we kind of decide, want to decide what is the next step, uh, because she bled with uh, anticoagulation, she got infected with immunosuppression, and we thought the IVIG was ineffective because she has persistently positive antiphospholipid. Um, that brought the question of the possibility of starting her on eculizumab, uh, which is a monoclonal antibody against uh, C5, uh, but we had to think about the possible side effect, especially with her uh, recent uh, endocarditis, and uh, not to mention the, the very high cost of the eclusimab. Um, as of now, we have uh, back and forth discussion with her insurance to whether uh, they can uh, approve the eclusimab. Um, so I kind of like took advantage of this opportunity to ask an open question whether should we uh, proceed with the eclusimab um, and giving her prophylactic antibiotics or should we just continue on the IVIG and the rituximab? Well, it's <clears throat> interesting. One of the things we see in rheumatology lately, isn't it, is that we use autoantibody tests. We love autoantibody tests, but this case has two factors that could influence how you interpret the test. One is she's getting rituximab, which could conceivably decrease autoantibodies with or without concomitant clinical improvement, but also IVIG, which contains autoantibodies. So whose, whose antibodies are we measuring? But uh, it sounds like the eculizumab, we certainly think about the meningococcal infection, but it sounds like it might be a reasonable way to go, a very difficult case. Right. Especially with the, if you look at the pathogenesis of the antiphospholipid, uh, antibody syndrome, it has, uh, this is where the eclusumab will act by blocking the conversion of C5 to C5A and C5B, which will develop the membrane attack complex that will participate in the inflammation, thrombosis, and fetal death. All right, thank you very much. Excellent presentation, interesting case. And that's all for now from RWCS 2019. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from RWCS 2019 in beautiful Maui, Hawaii. We wish you all were here. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Annie Wu today. 
um, Annie is from Munster, Indiana, and she has a really good poster about something that our patients ask us about that I think is really, really important, and some, she has some really good salient points for us. Annie, thank you for being here. Tell me about your poster. Tell me about your case. Thank you. This is a case I saw in my first year of fellowship. Um, it's actually my first consult in the hospital. Um, this is regarding a 48-year-old African-American female um, who had a known history of sarcoidosis. She was admitted for weakness. Um, she had right arm weakness as well as um, she couldn't walk for about a month. Um, so we got on the case and of course she was um, put on the stroke pathway and multiple imaging were done, um, including MRI brain right here. As uh, so you can see, there are some atypical lesions that brought our attention. Um, and because of that, we had to expand our differential. Given her history of sarcoidosis, um, neurosarcoidosis is certainly in a diagnostic differential. But um, given that she was also receiving immunosuppressive meds by the time she came in, um, we had to consider PML. So um, she was able to get an LP done very early on in the admission. And as you can see right here, JC virus by PCR is negative. And that's one of my points I wanted to point out is that sensitivity of PCR for JC virus can vary from test to test depending on the lab laboratory that you send a test to. Um, in her case, this, does, this being negative um, really had to make us um, talk to her about pursuing um, the diagnosis. Um, ultimately, we were able to convince her about doing a brain biopsy, and obviously this is not something that anybody would want to do. It took us a long time to convince her to do so, but we got very fortunate with a neurosurgeon who was really helpful as well. So the brain biopsy was actually done for her. As you can see from the biopsy, um, there were multiple pathognomonic lesions that were consistent with PML, including right here, um, that's an astrocyte. It's called um, a, actually a plum purple astrocyte, um, and that is very typical. Along with right here, all the black dots are the JC virus in her brain. So um, in our case, ultimately the treatment was to not treat her along for the immunosuppressive meds. We had to take most of it away and she was kept on prednisone 15 milligrams a day. Um, as of now, it's 19 months out and she is still alive. And that's what I wanted to really talk about is she received her brain biopsy on the ninth day of the mission, um, and that ultimately contributed to her survival. Um, in the study in 2014, an average of four months actually passed for most people to receive the PML diagnosis, and a lot of people actually um, died shortly after. So in her, um, in her case, we're very happy that she was able to do so well. In her last MRI imaging, she actually improved in some of her lesions. Annie, that's really good news. I think what's important about this is treating the patient. And what you've shown us is that even though the JC virus PCR was negative, which it, it can be, absolutely, as you pointed out, I think that because you were really on top of the case, the patient had a better survival because you did the brain biopsy. And because once you know what's going on, you can actually treat the human. And so I really, I commend you guys, the whole team for that. It's a really good, it's a good plan to treat the human, I think, and you know that. So I'm really proud of you. You've done a great job. Thank you for coming to Maui. Oh my gosh, of course. So um, thank you, Dr. Wu. I appreciate you. And um, check us out on roomnow.com. And we hope that we will see you at RWCS 2020, also in Maui. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposium 2019 in Maui. And today I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Brian Abe regarding his poster. Brian, thank you for being here. And tell me a little bit about what brought you here. What's your poster about? Sure, so uh, so my poster, it's, it's about a case of dermatomyositis with rapidly progressive interstitial lung disease. Um, it was a patient, a 48-year-old male who presented to our hospital with a subacute presentation of the typical rash associated with dermatomyositis with the heliotrope rash, uh, the v-neck sign, the shawl sign, the holster sign, Gautron's papules. Um, but he had this rapidly progressive shortness of breath uh, and so we worked him up for infectious etiologies uh, which were all uh, negative. Um, the key things about his case, however, was that in addition to all the typical findings of dermatomyositis, he had other findings that were suggestive of the MDA5 subtype, including um, palmar papules, as well, as well as mucocutaneous ulcers, especially in his mouth. Um, we recognized this uh, fairly early on, and, and because his oxygen requirements uh, increased very rapidly within 24 hours, uh, we decided to, to treat urgently and immediately with uh, high-dose immunosuppression. So um, if you can look at, a, at the figure here, you'll see pictures of his uh, heliotrope rash, um, including the eye, uh, eyelids, as well as above the eyebrows there, his Gautron's papules here, but also uh, the Palmer um, papules uh, on the Palmer aspects of his hands, which kind of led us to the uh, MDA5 subtype. Um, initial CT, when we saw it, uh, showed these peripheral kind of ground glass opacities um, that actually within 24 hours when we repeated the CT uh, rapidly progressed. He was actually intubated on uh, hospital day two um, and uh, we started a gram of solumedrol for three days. We started uh, tacrolimus, um, something that the uh, Japanese groups have shown to be somewhat effective for uh, rapidly progressive ILD, MDA5 subtype. Um, as well as uh, IVIG and cyclo IV cyclophosphamide. Now, on hospital day three, day four, he rapidly deteriorated. He had to be intubated, and he was actually placed on uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And while he was in the ICU, and, and I was trying to think of other um, uh, treatment uh, for him, uh, my attending suggested, well, what about... Um, Tocilizumab. What about the JAK-STAT inhibitors? So um, I did a little bit of a research on this, and there's actually a few case reports um, with successful use of JAK-STAT inhibitors, uh, specifically tofacitinib, uh, in treatment of rapidly progressive ILD uh, associated with the MDA5 subtype. And so that's really what my poster is about, is kind of reviewing the literature on tofacitinib, or at least JAK-STAT inhibitors, in uh, dermatomyositis, uh, and suggesting that this may be a potential role uh, in the future. Well, Brian, how did the patient do? <laughs> Unfortunately, on hospital day about 12, he, um, he had multiple complications because of the, uh, the ECMO. And he was on heparin. Um, because of his oral uh, ulcers, we, we decided to, uh, to, play to place a tracheostomy. Um, but however, he started bleeding from that. He started having GI bleeding on the heparin. And ultimately, the, the family decided to withdraw care. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that, but it seems now we have an additional case study about JAKSTAT and how it may be effective in these types of patients. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge. I really look forward to hearing more about this in the future. Thank you. And check us out on RoomNow.com and coming to you live from Maui.
Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from Maui at RWCS 2019. And today, I love interviewing the fellows about their posters. They're the experts in what they're talking to us about. So today, I have Dr. Erin Hammett from Scripps, and she's going to tell us a little bit about a really interesting case of a rash and congenital hip dysplasia. Erin, tell me about your poster. So this is a patient, she's 43 years old, and she came to us as a consultation for a positive ANA and a rash. So she had this new erythematous maculopapular rash that you can see here. Um, and the question to us was, does she have lupus? So we got her specific lupus antibodies and they were negative, her inflammatory markers were negative. The key part to the history was that she had had a metal on metal hip implant 10 years earlier with cobalt chromium alloy. Um, so we got a hip x-ray and it showed some increased um, metal parts around the, the head of the hip. So we checked her cobalt and her chromium levels and they were both elevated. Um, so what we did was we explanted the hip and her rash went away. So the key points to this case are that um, metal on metal hip implants were very popular from the years 2003 to 2010. About a million were placed um, and now they're recalling many of them. And uh, some side effects to metal and metal hip implants are systemic toxicity and hip pain. So if you have a patient that has a metal and metal hip implant and they have any of those symptoms, um, consider checking a cobalt and chromium level. And if they're elevated, you may want to take the hip out. Thank you so much, Dr. Hammett. I really appreciate it. I think this is a really good identification of something that would affect potentially a lot of our patients, especially given the time frame and especially given what happened and the dramatic improvement that we've seen. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here. And more from RWCS 2019 to come. And check us out on roomnow.com. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Cavanaugh at RWCS 2019. Real highlight of the conference is the participation of the fellows that we have come and been fortunate to have a great group of fellows again this year. And the fellows are charged with bringing an interesting case and they have definitely not disappointed this year. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Masood is going to talk to us about a case they saw at the University of Arizona on a very important and very topical uh, issue. Dr. Masood. Uh, thank you very much. So actually, um, I'm presenting to you a study that we've done with a compilation of patients, not just one, um, about uh, examining ethnic differences in um, OA patients who um, and their attitudes about prescription NSAIDs. So this is a very important topic because um, in Arizona, we have a huge Hispanic population. And uh, what we did was we submitted questionnaires to basically anyone who had um, knee or hip away without um, any history of surgery and the questionnaires had a lot of questions but one of the things that we ended up pooling was uh, you know just uh, getting their opinions of, and perceptions about prescription NSAIDs both topical and oral um, and seeing you know where their uh, how their opinions different are different make a difference and then when so that we can be informed on how to educate our patients so um, I wanted to just basically go over the results. What we ended up finding out with that was that Hispanics are less likely to have even heard about 
prescription NSAIDs. They've heard about the over-the-counter medications, but the prescription NSAIDs, they didn't realize that that was even a thing or if that was stronger or anything like that. So compared to uh, non-Hispanic whites, that was a difference. Um, Hispanics were also less likely to feel that the oral NSAIDs were beneficial. And they were also less likely to feel that they were risky or harmful. So those are both misconceptions that we were like, oh, we need to do a better job in educating our Hispanic uh, population. Um, because, yeah, um, oral NSAIDs can be very beneficial, you know, uh, at their prescription doses. and But uh, they can be harmful as well. So um, we need to be uh, on top of that part of uh, our education. So... Um, the other thing was uh, Hispanics were less likely to believe NS uh, topical NSAIDs were harmful. And yeah, they're not very systemically absorbed, but they're still, there's some um, harms in that too. So overall, we've um, just learned a lot about our patient population that we're dealing with. And um, all of these graphs basically are answers are like how they distribute for different questions, like helpful, um, helpful for themselves, pain relief for themselves, um, risky, dangerous questions. But overall, you can see that you know there's a pretty clear delineation. And some of the things that um, can confound that we also presented was the um, overall the sociodemographic and clinical characteristics between the two populations. The few things I did want to point out was that the Hispanic population was actually younger um, overall than the um, our non-Hispanic white population. And also that they had an, um, you can see it in education, but also they had a, a less likely to have an annual income of greater than $40,000. So those are some things to keep in mind as well. So uh, very nice uh, study. It sounds like it lends itself toward thinking of an educational intervention. Are you all working on that? Yes. Um, I mean, uh, we haven't come up with anything standardized yet, but I've um, made a point to, with my Hispanic pa patients, to spend more time and be able to allot more time to their visits so that we can, you know, get these uh, misconceptions cleared. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Masood, and thank you for watching. And that's it for RWCS 2019. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from RWCS 2019 and I'm with Dr. Lucas LaShawn um, who's going to tell us about one of his interesting cases and I think there are a lot of salient points to this and I'm really glad you brought this case for us, Lucas. Thank you. Um, so my case I wanted to highlight because um, although there's not super interesting features necessarily that differentiate it, it's a really classic um, case that we should always kind of think about on the differential um, when we see a patient with sclerodactyly or indurated skin. Um, so this is a 55-year-old gentleman that initially came into the emergency department over the summer. That time was complaining of some neuropathic pain, nerve pain shooting down into his hands and feet, some chest pain. Um, the team then checked a CK, they did a um, cardiac workup. He was essentially discharged home. Um, when we actually got called was about three months later, so this is in October. Um, at that time, again, still having the nerve pain described as shooting down from kind of forearms into the hands and from backs of the legs down into the feet. Um, but then interestingly, he asked me specifically, doctor, why is my skin so thick? Um, and so uh, when we were looking at the skin, you could, have, you could see the pathology very firm and indurated. Um, but he also sort of held up his arm um, and said, why does my arm do this, demonstrating his, um, what you see in the pictures is his very classic groove sign and Poderange changes. Um, notably, um, no Raynaud's, no rashes, 
uh, no weakness, normal nail full capillaroscopy. And then if you looked at his labs, actually going back to the summer, um, he had a peripheral eosinophilia uh, that had previously been missed. Um, so we were very concerned at that point, even without the MRI, sort of our leading diagnosis with the classic skin changes, um, and even his, uh, his neuropathy for eosinophilic fasciitis. Um, and even before the biopsy, the MRI actually kind of clinched the diagnosis. Um, very classic um, findings of essentially fascial enhancement. Um, that actually extend in, into the intermuscular planes, but without any surrounding myositis. Um, and so I know at some centers actually, because um, one of our attendings um, uh, did a lot of the scleroderma research at UCLA, um, and one of his partners in that field um, on the East Coast actually just used the skin findings and an MRI to make the diagnosis. Um, but since it was such an interesting case for us and we don't see that many come through, we decided to pursue the full thickness biopsy. What I think is really interesting about this is that sometimes we miss the diagnosis. And to be fair, the team that saw him initially thought it was a cardiovascular issue. And of course, in the emergency room, we have to focus on the things that can kill a patient. But what's interesting, and you pointed this out, Lucas, is that he had a peripheral eosinophilia even then. So the question really becomes, had he been um, more apt to follow up, maybe, you know, some other conditions I'm sure played a factor, then maybe we would have had a diagnosis sooner. But you told me an interesting thing about this case too, that the patient now is doing well. What did you do for him? Tell me about that. So uh, and again, not much literature um, in terms of directing us um, for treatment, um, but the larger case series, like 10 or 15 patients, when I say large, um, essentially first line is uh, prednisone. Um, and from that data as well, it kind of suggests, again, the number of patients is quite small that, um, that most patients are not going to have a complete response to prednisone alone. Um, and so typically, sort of the first line, again, as in most um, of our diseases, is to add methotrexate as a steroid-sparing agent. Um, the thing to keep in mind is the literature for patients who do respond may not see a response for 18, 24 months. Um, and so um, your goal with treatment is not so much um, in the short term to um, get the skin better, but it's to prevent it from getting worse. Um, and so a big part of that um, is preventing joint contractures. Um, the patients historically who did poorly um, actually ended up with a lot of morbidity related to the joint contractures. And so the steroids and the methotrexate, um, as well as help from our physical therapists and occupational therapists, um, is really to prevent um, that morbidity, even if we can't get a complete response in the skin. Well, I think this is a great case. It's one more for the books, especially since we don't have a huge patient population. Thank you for coming, Dr. LaShawn. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And um, more from roomnow.com. And continue to check us out at RWCS 2019.